Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Hello, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be joining us. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you not familiar with our broadcast, maybe checking us out for the first time. It's our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's obviously where you come in. Hey, uh, whatever questions you might have about the Bible, having a personal relationship with God, as that relationship's revealed in the Bible, maybe you've been asked a tough question about the Christian faith. Maybe you've got some tough questions percolating in the back of your mind and uh, you've never found a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place to get them answered. That's what we like to present to you each and every day. Whether you'd like to talk about a particular passage in the Bible that you'd like to dig deeper into, whether you'd like a perspective on the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, maybe a little insight into the current uh, struggles you might be having personally, spiritually. We'd love to build you up in that area and, uh, of course, uh, be able to equip you to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and reverence as uh, we desperately need to do in these dark and troubling times. That's what we're here to do, and you can join us. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us if they want to be a part of the broadcast? Well, if you are joining us online, you can do so through our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, Christian Fellowship. If you click, or click, click, click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, it will be on the purple bar. You will be directed to where you can interact with us face-to-face, and on the right-hand side of the screen, a means for you to send us your questions. Note as well, at the bottom of the screen, wherever you are listening to us, you'll have the chance and opportunity to send us your questions by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Feel free to join us there if you want spelling clarified. If you're listening on Reach Radio, we'll meet you I guess all the way, uh, questions, plural, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. If you want to join us on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is the page. Our YouTube page is a reason for hope. However, since we don't have control over when and why we are taken off those platforms, we want to make sure you are aware that unless there is a technical malfunction, there will, of course, still be the broadcast streaming every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific, if you're not under Daylight Savings Time through our website, which we recommend you all make your regular meeting place to engage with us on the broadcast. Note as well, the questions that we receive and answer on the broadcast are those that fit three criteria, sincere Bible and questions. If they are in the form of a question about the Bible and they are sincere, we want to make sure that you get answers to those that you're actually listening to, that we can provide insight to, that is relevant to scripture, and of course, that is, uh, well, I guess going to actually demand an answer. If you want to make comments, then by all means, but no, we are here to engage with your questions. Right. So uh, with all that said, why don't we take a moment and turn this uh, broadcast over to the Lord to ask his blessing and his guidance and direction on it. Would you like to pray for us? It would be an honor. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people. And we want to ask in your spirit as well, equip us to not only give reasonable answers, but a reason for the hope that is within us and equip those listening to do the same. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, anything 
since we didn't clarify beforehand to talk about before we get to the questions? Yeah, well, uh, we've got a, a few items in the news that are, I think, in a sense, prophetically significant uh, that we wanted to call uh, to your attention. Uh, one question that uh, comes up here uh, quite often is uh, with the uh, rapid advances of technology, there's always questions about whether these advances in technology have uh, prophetic significance. And on the uh, Not the B website, there's a fascinating uh, story that was uh, uh, posted by uh, their contributor who goes by the name of John Knox. I don't think it was the actual John Knox, but someone who likes to use his name. Uh, he writes, every day I laugh a little at people who got a little too deep into the Left Behind novels and don't have a proper understanding of what the Bible says about the end of the world. Throughout the pandemic, the mark of the beast has gone trending numerous times. Uh, what with the vax mandates and uh, World Economic Federation nonsense and the lockdowns and social credit systems and the like. Then those who uh, have uh, eschatological wisdom understanding of these things point to the spirit of the Antichrist without necessarily referring to a particular point in the book of Revelation. If you start becoming too obsessed with these things, you'll end up like the weirdos who buy billboards predicting the exact date that Jesus is going to return. But then he says, but this, my friends, is even a little bit too on the nose. And uh, what he shares is that MasterCard, uh, the credit card company, is piloting a new technology that lets shoppers make payments with just their face or their hand at a checkout point. On uh, the CNBC website, we are told the company on Tuesday launched a program for retailers to offer biometric payment methods like facial recognition and fingerprint scanning. At checkout, users will be able to authenticate their payments by showing their face or their palm of their hand instead of swiping their card. Uh, this technology has been piloted in stores in Brazil and will roll out globally this year. Uh, all the research that we've done has told us that consumers love biometrics. MasterCard's president of, uh, president of cyber and intelligence told CNBC they want making a payment at a store to be as convenient as opening their phone. About 1.4 billion people are expected to use facial recognition technology to authenticate a payment by 2025, more than doubling from 671 million in 2020, according to a forecast from Juniper Research. So uh, when something like this comes up and uh, we're talking about a way to buy or sell using a uh, technology that will be able to either read your hand or your face in order to uh, put forward a transaction, there are those who will obviously say, wow, 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 this sure sounds like the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. But there is a significant uh, demarcation that uh, has to be brought into mind because inevitably, boy, even since I got saved, I remember when barcodes first came on the scene and the idea of checking out in the grocery store and you can just run your, your uh, goods, buy this thing, and it will computer uh, process your transaction. People said, is that the mark of the beast? Well, didn't a thief in the night portray when the end times was you know going into its zenith and people had the barcodes on their hands and that yeah. was the mark of the yeah, beast? Yeah, actual barcodes. And uh, But now you don't even need a, a visible barcode to have this kind of transaction. And, and you look at this and uh, it, it obviously, in a sense... 
lines up with some scriptures uh, that we find, for instance, in uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 17, it does describe a one world economic system that would be keyed to a mark that would be presented on the right hand or the forehead, does it not? Do you have that scripture? Yes. And again, the context of this is not specifically the Antichrist, but his protege, the beast from the earth. We'll be discussing that not this week, but next on our Wednesday night studies, but essentially an enforcement of the worshiping of the Antichrist. It's the true and living God whose head was wounded by the sword right. and it was healed. We'll talk about that more or ask we're game, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, he causes all verse 16 says small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Then it goes on to say, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is six, three score and six. Now, obviously people have read everything and their mom into that passage. And it's not, of course, biblically based when it comes to revelation. There's information that we're told information that we are waiting for further information on, information that deserves investigation. And just like when Matthew, say, for instance, was making a reference to the abomination that causes desolation, they gave that caveat, let him who reads, let him understand. It was a reference to Daniel chapter 9. But if we take a step and ask, okay, well, what's the significance of this number? Well, a lot of people have made speculations. Good ministries like uh, Chuck Missler, I believe, has mm. uh, gone into biblical numerology on the issue, and I take it always with a grain of salt. But when it comes to the substance of the issue, what, and this is important when finding any parallels to common events, and the fine line, you'll note that is a pun in a minute, between newspaper eschatology, which is a mistake, reading current events into the end times, as opposed to understanding the end times and being wary of current events, that's wisdom. Right. If we have Important a, distinction to make. Yeah, if we have a weary eye in the sky, then obviously we're going to be looking for and hastening the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. But the point being made is that. Let me know if you don't get that one. When we saw, for instance, the truckers in Canada having all their financial assets seized because they were holding a politically, uh, I guess, frowned upon position in protest for their lockdowns, that was a foreshadowing of how someone would not be able to buy or sell without a government authority behind them. Right. And just in the same way, we see that involvement with the right hand or the forehead or face in this case is, as the uh, author John Knox, not the real one, but the pseudonym one, was saying as a little close to the nose. But this is what's important if we're going to keep a level head. One of the definitions of parallel lines is that they never actually touch one another, but they're both headed the same direction. You jump from one parallel to another if they are in fact facing that direction. If the elements you are focusing on don't go in that direction, it's not relevant to the point. The problem is people say any association from one to the other means that everything involving one it means everything involving the other. Are we saying that MasterCard is now the financial institution of the Antichrist? No, and not the B isn't either. But if we were to look at these parallels and say that's dodgy, what would be the most appropriate response? Well, I think the most appropriate response when we see things like this happen, we see them come up quite a bit, 
especially as far as the mark of the beast. And, you know, there are people who say, oh, you know, have I taken the mark of the beast? Because uh, some even wondered about that with the vaccine and, and so forth. Well, here's Which one. Here's the, the, the way that we stay on track. We understand what the whole counsel of God's word is on a particular subject. Uh, could this MasterCard technology that reads your face or your right hand when you check out at the grocery store be a step in the direction of the last day's technology that Revelation chapter 13 indicates is going to be a global method of control for the Antichrist. Certainly, it could be a step in that direction. Uh, I, I would be surprised to find out that it, that it isn't. Uh, you know, we do see uh, hints of the kind of technological advances that we have in our day and age, setting the stage for the prophecies in the book of Revelation. If you're with us in our study uh, in Revelation chapter 11 of the two prophets, how uh, there would be a time where the entire world will look upon the bodies of the two prophets, which will be allowed to lie uh, out in the streets of Jerusalem all at once. And the entire world is going to have this satanic Xmas party if you will, to celebrate the death of these two individuals. Well, without uh, global satellite networks and uh, the Internet, the, the technology we have today, how could the entire world see these two bodies at the same time? Well, we see this technological uh, facilitating of predictions that are made in the book of Revelation. But where we really have to be careful about the mark of the beast is this, and I think this can keep you out of a peck of trouble. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, we're told another important detail about this mark that can save you some spiritual Malox moments here. Uh, in Revelation, chapter 14, we're told in verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink from the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, and the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone and the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Uh, and it says, In the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now notice what is a prerequisite for receiving this version of a worldwide economic uh, portal, if you will, access to this. It is not just taking this mark. You can only take the mark if what? If you worship the image of the beast and uh, worship the beast and his image. Right. So uh, when people get worried about this, oh my gosh, could I have unthinkingly taken the mark of the beast? Is my credit card making me a part of this one world economic system and so on? Don't worry about it uh, unless MasterCard says, oh, by the way, uh, in order to sign up for this technology, uh, in order to download our app, first you have to worship this idol and worship this one uh, world-dominating uh, uh, dictator. Uh, unless that happens, don't worry about it. Uh, interestingly, though, we do see this as uh, kind of a heavenly heads up that the technology that can make these things possible is not the stuff of science fiction. It's not a stretch to see, as you mentioned, uh, how the government of Canada completely shut down the bank accounts of individuals who were taking a different political position than the one that they espoused. Uh, we certainly do see governments doing that. We certainly do see how the entire world, because of convenience sake, could be brought into one uh, worldwide economic system. And uh, we would put it in the category 
of uh, what Jesus said in the book of Luke chapter 21. When you see these things begin to happen, look up for your salvation draws near. We don't freak out because of these things or become hysterical. Rather, we say, you know what? Uh, The pieces of the puzzle are certainly coming together. Uh, Speaking of the pieces of the puzzle coming together in a uh, disturbing way, uh, we are told uh, that a group of Congress uh, representatives uh, had a uh, very interesting uh, statement uh, to make today. A particular uh, 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 proposal was made by them, uh, not just uh, for a statement from Congress, but uh, for a uh, a particular uh, uh, point of view to become uh, a part of uh, U.S. Uh, congressional uh, 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 bylaws, if you will. Uh, The squad, as they are known, a group of individuals that tend to take a fairly extreme point of view, uh, particularly on U.S. uh, relations to uh, Israel, uh, introduced a blatantly anti-Semitic resolution into uh, uh, Congress today, calling on the federal government to describe Israel's founding uh, with the Palestinian term Nakba. If you're not familiar with the term Nakba, it literally means the catastrophe. So every uh, day or every year when Israel will celebrate uh, their birth as a nation, uh, they celebrate it, but in the Palestinian territories and across much of the Arab world, it's referred to as the catastrophe. The resolution was authored by Representative Rashida Tlaib, co-sponsored by Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, Marie Newman, and Betty McCollum, a group known for their anti-Semitic criticisms of Israel. The resolution calls on the United States to commemorate the Nakba through official recognition and remembrance, claiming the word also refers to the ongoing process of Israel's expropriation of Palestinian land, its dispossession of the Palestinian people that continues to this day through the establishment and expansion of approximately 300 illegal settlements and outposts in the occupied Palestinian West Bank, in which approximately 674,000 Israels reside as of 2020. Well, Senator Rick Scott of Florida blasted the resolution on Twitter and called on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to condemn it. He said, Israel is our great ally and continued anti-Semitism from radical socialists in the House is horrific. Uh, These are Speaker Pelosi's Democrat members. Does she agree with them? If not, she must immediately condemn this. Well, uh, again... Uh, anti-Semitism has uh, become uh, increasingly de rigueur, I mean, part of the usual discussion in uh, a number of quarters. It's hard to avoid if you go on, say, a platform like Twitter or Facebook and take a look at uh, how people view Israel uh, in uh, in many ways. Uh, the the uh, prophetic side of this, obviously, is that uh, when Congress is considering Uh, making a statement like this, that the founding of Israel by their lights is nothing short of a catastrophe. I think we uh, find ourselves inching a little bit closer to a real warning that we're given in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God promised Abraham he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. Uh, Those who bless Israel are going to be blessed by God. Those who curse Israel are going to find themselves uh, in a very difficult and untenable situation. And there are those 
who are concerned that uh, the tide of unconditional support of Israel, uh, not unconditional, I would say that's a poorly chosen word, but uh, strong support of Israel in the United States appears to be turning uh, militarily uh, and uh, in other ways. If a resolution like this sees the light of day beyond just a grandstanding, if you will, by some politicians, I would say we have some real trouble here. But the good news is another story that ran on the Jerusalem Post earlier today uh, referred to Operation Chariots of Fire. Uh, This is probably one of the most Uh, large-scale and technologically sophisticated war games that uh, Israel has conducted in their history. Uh, Part of Operation Chariots of Fire is to simulate what uh, the Israeli Defense Forces would do if there was, say, for instance, a nuclear attack on Israel from Iran and subsequent attack by other Iranian allies against Israel. How would Israel be able to deal with that? How would Israel be able to deal with, say, Uh, individuals within their territories who would take uh, alliance with Iran against Israel. They remember that greater are those who are for us than those who are against us. Yeah, well, that would be part of it. But uh, one of the uh, interesting things that came out of it is uh, IDF uh, Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi uh, pointed out that uh, the United States is going to be participating in Operation Chariots of Fire. In a very significant way, the United States is going to be providing uh, refueling planes that would be absolutely necessary, for instance, if Israel uh, were to conduct an attack, a significant attack on Iran's uh, nuclear weapons facilities. Uh, And so uh, the fact that... uh, the United States is there. Uh, the fact that the, uh, the, the head of CENTCOM is going to be there as well, and uh, the fact that Defense Minister Benny Gantz is in Washington where he's scheduled to meet with his American counterpart, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, I think uh, that tells us uh, some very powerful things. According to an article in the Jerusalem Post, the IDF is planning several military options against Iran should the nuclear talks between the West and the Islamic Republic fail. It does appear that it's moving in that direction. During the month-long military exercise, it will practice just one of these options. Uh, They're also going to implement lessons learned from Operation Guardian of the Walls through the entire month during the 11 days of fighting last year between Israel and uh, the uh, Hamas terrorists in Gaza. Uh, There was also heavily rioting rioting in mixed Arab-Israel cities such as Lod and Jaffa, uh, during which two people were killed and several citizens injured. Uh, Israel is attempting to uh, make a uh, a uh, an opportunity to be able to learn some lessons in that and change their tactics and strategy. But the good news for us is that I think as long as the United States stands as an ally of Israel, uh, the United States will continue to enjoy God's favor. Certainly it's not because of our righteousness or the fact that uh, we are uh, a predominantly Christian nation anymore. I think we have definitely crossed the line into being a post Christian nation, if you will. 
uh, and I think our policy on abortion alone uh, is indicative of that. Uh, hopefully that is going to be changing in the near future. But the fact of the matter is uh, we do see some positive signs, and although we are often uh, want to present to you some of the more grim signs of the times that we see here, there are also positive signs that God has not done with the United States yet. And then as long as we stay as a staunch ally of Israel, I believe uh, Genesis 12.3 is going to apply to us. And in case you're wondering, the reason why is because we're still here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All exactly. right, going out to our questions, starting this off on our, or I guess let's start on our YouTube page. We received a question from Mac uh, regarding Corinthians. In general. One or two. Okay. Uh, seven, nine through 11, regarding demons and Satan, that they believe in God but can never be saved, right? Yes, Mac, according to Hebrews chapter 1, it notes that God does not give aid, or Hebrews chapter 2. two. Yeah. Uh, God does not give aid to angels but does give aid to the sons of Abraham. That's where we get that conclusion. Uh, how are we saved as we believe, but believing isn't enough if we don't obey? So we jumped to about four different verses in that passage. We were able to mention two. But you mentioned Corinthians uh, 7, 9 through 11, first or second. We'll narrow that down in a minute, I hope. But the point then being made is, obviously, we jumped over to James, who was making a totally different point than the one being made about the demons. But the inference is still there. If the demons recognize that God is, then when Hebrews 11 says those who believe must believe that God is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What's the difference between that second detail and the first? Because obviously the adversary and his messengers, that's what the devil and his angels mean, uh, are aware of God's is-ness, but he, they obviously don't uh, believe that they have any reward to take from him. They don't want a relationship with him. It's obviously, not that they can't yeah. be saved. They don't want to be. But the point then still stands when it comes to this issue, and we'll sort out verse by verse and so forth. But what is the real issue at heart here? What makes the difference between someone who knows about God and someone who is known and knows God? Okay, so the question again? Uh, Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, the demons and Satan believe in God, but can never be saved. That is true. Yeah. How are we saved as we believe, but believing isn't enough if we don't obey? So quoting James out of context and saying salvation as opposed to okay, saying What is the nature of, of saving faith, in other words? Well, a uh, couple things I think that we have to keep straight, because this is a, an issue that does uh, confuse a lot of people. I think it's a great question. Uh, is it enough just to believe in God? Now, when someone says believe in God in our culture, what do they generally mean? Well, they'll accept the the certain devil. truth statements about God as being valid. You know, oh, well, I believe God exists. Uh, some people will even say, well, you know, I'm, I'm even willing to concede that Jesus is the son of God. You know, they'll go to church on Easter Sunday and uh, say, oh, well, you know, it, it maybe even rose from the dead. Now, you can say you agree with all those statements but when the bible speaks of saving faith uh, what it's talking about is not something that we uh, bolster up with a series of good works saving faith is trusting someone you know sometimes we uh, will fall into the trap of uh, becoming 
Christians, like some people, become Republicans or Democrats because we tend to believe the party line. When the Bible speaks of trusting in Christ, what it means is just that. It's not just saying, well, I believe certain true statements about Christ, but I believe, for instance, that Jesus died for me personally. Uh, To trust Christ means to say, you know what? If God is just and must punish all sin, he's got to look at my life and see that there's no way I'm going to ever be a part of his kingdom unless, of course, I'm forgiven. Well, I believe what the Bible says, that Jesus died on the cross in order to make my forgiveness possible. I can ask God for forgiveness because Jesus died in my place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf, on your behalf, all our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So what is the difference between that and uh, the faith that James describes as the faith of demons? You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons believe and tremble. Well, you can believe certain statements about God are true, but unless you put your faith and trust in what Christ did for you personally, that that truth applies to you, you're still, well, 18 inches or so from heaven, the longest distance in the universe between the head and the heart. Uh, You know, I'll run into people who say, well, you know, I grew up in church, you know, and I guess if you were to, uh, you know, ask me, you know, what uh, religion I am, I would say I'm a Christian because I belong to a certain church, a certain denomination. Well, all well and good. But if you've never made a personal decision to say to God, God, please forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. Uh, I put my faith and my trust in you. Well, then all you've got is some intellectual theory about God and not a real relationship with him. And so that's the difference. You know, when the subject of faith without works is dead then comes up, what's the distinction there? Well, he was talking about sanctification, not salvation. When he was talking about... Okay, what's the difference? Two words there, right? Yes, those are not the same letters in the same order. They both start with S, but... Right. And with N, but... What's the difference between salvation and sanctification? Sanctification. Sanctification. (laughs) Sanctification. The first key detail is, again, to go to the passage that's being referenced and the other passages that are unfortunately quoted alongside of it. When James is giving the illustration of Abraham believing God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, we first need to recognize James is quoting something. He's going to Genesis, and in Genesis, Abraham had not received a son yet, but he trusted that he would, and God considered that a right relationship with him. Obviously, that didn't mean that he stopped then acting in light of those promises, but it meant that his heart and his life both added up. It was a demonstration of sincerity, not of a requirement for officiality, if you will. When we're talking about conditions tacked onto salvation, that's once again, like we saw here, four verses, all with different contexts all being mashed together to essentially talk ourselves out of salvation. Plenty of cult groups can do that. But when we're talking about the issue of what is being talked about in James, he tells us, he's referencing Genesis. You look at Genesis and you realize not a lot of works there, but works followed. Why? Not because those accomplished salvation, but demonstrated the sincerity of what caused it. And that was what? Faith. Right. Faith without works is dead is an observation made by a man who did no works apart from faith. 
and receive salvation. The sincerity of that faith was proven over time, but it was the attempt to address something that was going on when people say, well, you have faith and I have my works. Yeah. Like a lot of works righteousness cults today do. Right. If on the other hand, you'd say, I'll show you my faith by my works, not say I'll buy my works, prove my faith exists. No, it's going to happen naturally. But if we, on the other hand, run into people who are going to get so hogtied over those semantics and go to this passage and that, the best way is to take it on a case-by-case basis. So the cross-reference was, thank you, Mac, for Second Corinthians 7 and verse 9 through 11, is that passage talking about the faith of demons and people both disqualifying us from salvation just because we trust in God but haven't done enough to prove it yet. Well, this is, let's start in verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, oh, Paul's addressing specific people at a specific time regarding what he wrote prior, 1 Corinthians. Right. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now, what were they sorry about? There are some speculations, some regarding the total issues that he was addressing them about tolerating an incestuous relationship with someone in the congregation, total disorder and disarray in regards to the practice of spiritual gifts, being disrespectful towards communion, being gluttonous in the feast and abusing the wine and so forth, being uh, just open to false doctrine in general, which is what Second Corinthians is about. Yeah. On and on it could go. But nonetheless, he said, your sorrow, notice verse 9, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Uh, For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Now notice, does it say that sorrow produces salvation? No. No, it's leading to. These are steps that go on in the heart. But who's the one who leads us into salvation? Well, remember, 2 Corinthians follows 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 says what? No one calls Jesus Lord. Is that a statement of acts? No. Is that a statement of repentance or sorrow? No. No, it is a statement of faith, except by who? Except by the Holy Spirit. Key difference. So notice this. Verse 11, or verse 10, we're still in there. Leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, zeal, vindication, all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now notice, proved, not created. Right. So even if I were to take both of the statements out of context and say, oh, well, both apply to salvation. Well, he mentions salvation quite briefly, but the whole conversation is about what? Them following through on their sorrow and not just saying, oh, what was me? Anyway, back to life yeah. as usual. And it's interesting how there's a, a, another component in there. The, you know, the Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be regretted. And that brings you to salvation. You know, in other words, unless you know before you even come to a saving relationship with Christ, unless you know you need saving, why in the world are you going to turn to a savior? Uh, you know, how in the world is the, the cross of Jesus Christ going to make any sense to you unless you know you need saving? And, and if how you, you know, believe something if and you if, don't know what it is. And if you know you need saving, you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's not going to be a, oh, I guess I made some wrong turns. Uh, around. You're going to go, oh, my goodness. You know, I, I can't believe the way 
that I lived, the way that I dishonored God, you know, the way that I've gone my own way. Oh, man, I need forgiveness. Well, that leads to repentance. Now, the word to repent is an interesting one, isn't it? It just literally means to turn around. It's a military command. Well, in this case, it's well, a change of mind. And yeah, it's the word metanoia. It means a change of mind towards God that results in a change of heart that ultimately results in a changed life. And that's pretty much how that breaks down. You know, as far as keeping faith and works and where they fit into our salvation uh, together, I always think the simplest way to look at it is to take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. There we are told, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why are any of us going to heaven? Because of God's grace, his unconditional love for us. What's our part in that? Simply to believe in God's promise that he will save anyone who comes to him in faith. In fact, God even gives us, according to that passage, the faith to believe. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, if I look at my salvation like a two-part ticket uh, of saying, well, I believe in Jesus and I have to be baptized in order to be saved. Or I believe in Jesus and I have to join a church in order to be saved. Or I believe in Jesus and I have to read my Bible every day in order to be saved. I believe in Jesus and I have to share my faith in order to be saved. Then I'm saying something the Bible doesn't say. It's not of works. I will never be able to stand before God and say, boy, you know, it was great, Jesus, that you gave me that head start. But look what I did. I kept up my end of the bargain. No, salvation is all of God. It is his work within our lives. But when we are saved, we're not saved just to pray a prayer and then just kind of sit there inertly. That new relationship with God, the new creation he makes us into is going to transform our lives. And Ephesians chapter two and verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, not by good works, but what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Should future tense and an imperative future tense. Right. So, you know, if someone is genuinely saved, you enter into a love relationship with God, it's going to change your life. Uh, if, uh, you know, say for instance, I enter into any love relationship and it doesn't change the way I live. Well, chances are, it's not much of a love relationship. I've used this analogy before, but, uh, you know, imagine if I had said, uh, I do to your, your mom and we'd come back from our honeymoon and we're getting settled into our brand new life together. And she comes home and she sees me getting dressed up to go out somewhere. And she goes, well, where are you going? I said, well, I have a date tonight. She'd probably go, what? I said, well, you know, I mean, just because, you know, I got married doesn't mean that's going to change the way I live. I just want to keep my social life going the way I was when I was single. Well, A, knowing your mom, I probably wouldn't be around here to talk to you about that. Uh, But B, uh, what kind of love relationship would I have with this person that I've pledged to, you know, honor and love and cherish till death do us part, forsaking all others, uh, if that doesn't involve, say, changing my life. Now, I don't sit there with a list of all the requirements from the Arizona Revised Statutes as to what my obligations are in marriage and say, okay, um, gosh, I guess I have to do all these things. Oh, bummer, but I'm going to do all these things because I made this promise. No, I keep my vows as a husband. Why? 
uh, not because those vows make me righteous or even prove to my wife that I'm righteous, but because I love her. And that love gets manifested by the way I live my life. Same thing is true in our walk with God. We aren't saved by any good works. In fact, if you really want to forfeit all assurance of salvation, here's the shortest distance between two points. Look at yourself and your performance for God to try to justify yourself and try to uh, convince yourself that you're going to heaven. When I look at myself, oh man, sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong and sometimes I'll do the right thing but with the wrong motives and sometimes I'll have uh, wrong motives but end up doing the right thing. If I look at me, man, I'll just be involved with spiritual tail chasing till the Lord comes back. But if I look at Jesus and my faith and trust is in him and I go, I know I'm going to Jesus because Jesus himself said in John chapter five and verse 24, the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He is will not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Either I believe that or I don't. And if I believe that, then the Bible says I will not come into judgment. I'll be entering into eternal life. But as soon as I start to get this, you know, faith without works is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Gen, uh, you know, we don't want to have just this series of uh, creedal statements we believe about God and say that makes me a Christian. I want to have that living relationship with him. But I, my life has changed not because I, you know, put a list of things I got to do in a day on a vegetable magnet up on the fridge and try to keep that. No, I want to do everything in my life out of the overflow of a love relationship with God. And understanding that distinction is really, really important. Yeah, and if we cross-examine other claims, well, you can't get saved unless you're baptized. Well, then why did Paul say, I don't know if I baptized any of you except for, and he names a few houses, or I did not come to anything know anything or do anything above you except to preach Christ and him crucified. Yeah, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, I thought those were one and the same. You see the inconsistency. If I say, well, how can I be saved if I don't observe the sacraments? Well, I appreciate being sacrificial, if that's what you mean, but where do you see those sacraments in the Bible? And then they'll start spin, fold, and mutilating John 6 and all these other fun things, but ultimately at the end of the day, what's your authority, people or scripture? If you are brought into situations where unless you attend our church. Well, when did your church start? Apparently the apostles missed that memo. Yeah. I guess you're the only people in heaven. Test these things. Because if I, and again, we all fall into this trap, start basically setting up verses in a particular order, chained by like one common word, like a game of Scrabble, and just basically create for ourselves a, theolo- a theological cage where we talk ourselves out of being saved because we're not doing enough. The issue is when we aren't testing our conclusions, but we are testing our ideas. We need to do both. And if our conclusions don't line up with it, then we need to make sure that we are submitting to our proper authority. Because I can have ideas about how unworthy of salvation I am. It's not going to change the terms. It's not going to change the Savior. But yep. that's what matters. So careful yeah. with that, Max. Yeah, I guess this uh, here's a question here that sort of dovetails into this. A fellow writes, uh, Pastor Scott, I was witnessing online today. They asked me what religion I am, and I told them I'm a non-denominational Christian. I think I probably should have just said I'm saved by grace through faith. You know, you know if uh, you find yourself in a place where you say I'm a non-denominational Christian, that can be a great answer because sometimes people say, well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, you know, if we can use that as a bridge to tell people about Jesus, you know, I don't want to tell people about me. 
I want to get the conversation over to Jesus. And if that can be something that arouses some curiosity in someone, then 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 that's fine. Uh, If you do feel that you should have said, well, I'm just saved by grace through faith. That's whose grace. What does faith mean? And what does that have to do with religion? You know, and I I will tell you, before I became a Christian, you could have said that to me and I would have just stared at you blankly like I don't. Grace. Isn't that what you say before you eat? You know, what What do you mean by that? They wouldn't understand or associate that with Christ. But Christian, fortunately, communicates that a lot better. Yeah. And I think if we in love, you know, again, we talk about this program being called a reason for hope. Uh, you know, we want to be able to provide uh, and share with people the reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and reverence. The word meekness means literally strength under control. Uh, one of the things I think we really need to be careful about doing, especially as we share this faith in this world, is assuming that everybody's kind of in on the lingo that we speak as Christians. Uh, I, I remember not really being raised in the church at all. My experience in the church, man, they'd be throwing around these $5 theological words, and I'd have no clue what they were talking about uh, at, at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, you know, after a while you kind of get to be conversant and you just sort of assume you forget what it was like, uh, not to be in on it. Uh, great analogy, uh, I could share with you is I remember one of the first Bible studies I ever went to as a brand new believer, uh, was at a uh, Lutheran church that one of my buddies from the football team invited me to go to. And, uh, the guy who was, uh, uh, teaching it was uh, a youth pastor there and he had long hair and and kind of dressed like a hippie he looked like a disciple so i assumed he knew what he was talking about and they're talking about the book of galatians where the apostle paul said if you receive circumcision you've fallen from grace and i thought man that's pretty intense wow i i only had one problem i had no idea what circumcision was so being the type that always kind of led with my mouth and thought about consequences later i raised my hand i said well what's circumcision and the conversation ground to a screeching halt uh you know the uh sin sniffers that were in the room were turning eight shades of red uh the rowdies there were kind of laughing uh the guy was looking at me are you a wise guy or what are you trying to do with my bible study and yet there were probably some there that were kind of like me like going wow i'm glad he asked that instead of me because i have no idea what that is you know, when we communicate the gospel, and we even say, you know, I've been born again, you know, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, our culture takes it and says, you're doing bad before, but now you kind of got your act together. You're a comeback story. No, that's not what it means to be born again. And, and so even though the term born again is a perfectly valid biblical term, it's probably best to go the extra mile in those circumstances and say something to the effect of, You know, when I invited Christ into my life, when I I put my faith in Jesus, it was like God has given me a brand new life. I became a brand new person. You know, my desires changed. uh, My my sense of nearness to God completely changed. The way I looked at the world changed. My morality changed. It's like being a brand new person, being given a brand new start. You know, by going that extra mile and explaining what that means, you know, that builds a bridge. Uh, I I think we have to be very careful that uh, we don't fall into that trap of just saying, yeah, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, only a moron wouldn't know what it means to be born again. Uh, Some people just have never had the experience. So let's 
go that extra mile and be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us with that meekness and reverence. In other words, we don't want to compromise the truth to make it palatable to non-believers. That's where the reverence comes in. But meekness comes in when we decide, you know what, I'm going to you know, pull back on the reins a little bit. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to care enough about this other person to answer their question based on where they're coming from. And also note it's a two-way street. If we've been teaching people or people claim to have been following Christ and reading their Bible for some odd years, and we still have to explain to them, and I quote from Paul, the fundamental nature of not... We don't know if it was Paul, the author of Hebrews, said you still need the elementary things of Christ. Yeah. I want to give you solid food, but you still require milk. If you feel ashamed, it's not because the pastor's sinning. You should be. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to a non-believer, test the audience. Here's a question from Mac who wants to know, will I be tempted in heaven? Um, I don't think so to the degree that you're thinking of, Mac. I think that we'll be just as capable of being aware of things apart from God's nature as we are here, but we'd see it with the same nature as Jesus. And I guess the most appropriate and simple, I know, uh, social media response would be no more than Jesus is right now. Yeah. And uh, the reason I'd conclude that is because of a passage in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, here's the key, transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is even able to subdue all things to himself. Now, read from verse 17 onwards, and you note the context of that whole conversation is regarding temptation. Yeah. Us being dominated by our desires, people whose God is their belly. I yeah. feel like I want this to consume this, to participate in this, therefore I do it. Yeah. But we're being made in contrast to that, not now, but then. Yeah. So it does apply if you need the clarification. But when we're talking about the idea of being in heaven and just being above and beyond such things, why is that? It's true. But why is that? Not because we're so holy, but because he is that holy. When God is aware of evil things, he doesn't look on it in favor, not because it's icky and yucky. It's because I can't be anything apart from myself. And knowing firsthand all the goodness that God is, we won't become carbon copies of Jesus, but we'll be conformed to his image. Now, what does conformed mean in a physical sense or in a character sense yeah in our character so that's the point that's being made why be tempted in heaven not in any other way than say an adult would be tempted to eat baby food you might be aware of its existence but you're familiar enough with it to know i don't want it (laughs) yeah yeah there's a really neat passage in first peter chapter one uh and verse uh, 13 and following it says therefore gird up the loins of your mind be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be revealed Uh, to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you will also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. You know, the, the thing that's just really wonderful and I can't wait to experience it is that God's desire for you and me is to make us holy, to share his same character and when we are in the presence of Jesus, we shall be like him, we're told in First John chapter 3, uh, for we shall see him as he is. You know, although Jesus isn't ignorant of things that are contrary to the nature of God, he certainly doesn't indulge those things that are contrary to the nature of God. Right now, um, we live in the tension of living in two ages at once. 
in a sense. Uh, we still have a fallen sinful nature, and if we deny that, uh, well, we got problems. If we say we have no sin, we lie on the truth not in us. But we also have a new nature, and that new nature is growing within us. And that's what the Bible calls the process of sanctification, where we become more and more like Jesus, where we become interested in saying, wow, Lord, I want my character to change. I, I want to be more like Christ in the way I live my life. Uh, having that desire and uh, maybe even taking a look back at, uh, at our lives and saying, you know, I, I still struggle in areas of sin, but, you know, the Lord has done a work in my life. He has changed things within my life. Uh, and, and so uh, it's just wonderful to be able to see that kind of growth. And when we see the Lord face to face, we'll have that same kind of nature. Uh, some people worry they're going to get to heaven and they're going to blow it and God's going to uh, pull a crank and a trap door is going to take you down to H-E double hockey sticks. No, n nothing of the kind will ever happen. We'll have Jesus nature and man, what a relief that is going to be. Hey, just real quick, a uh, number of questions uh, being brought up about UFOs being in the news. We've talked a little bit about this and some want it to uh, kind of get into a conversation of the Nephilim, fallen angels, the great deception, it's been et cetera. Too long. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is, it is a question that's on a lot of people's hearts and minds. Just the, the uh, nutshell answer to this, and we can explore it more if you want, uh, is this. The Bible is absolutely silent about whether there is life on other planets or not. There's no thou shalt or thou shalt not about uh, space beings from, say, the Federation of Planets are concerned. I sincerely doubt whether there is intelligent life, sometimes here on Earth, but on other planets for these reasons. Uh, when we take a look at what the Bible has to say about the nature of creation, uh, the Bible says, first of all, the Earth was created before the heavens. In other words, the first creation of was this earth that we live on right here. Interestingly, uh, we're also told that events here on planet Earth had universal impact. Uh, in, in other words, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the entire creation was affected. We're told that when God wraps up his dealings with this world, when, uh, when God, for instance, uh, is going to come back, he's coming back here to planet Earth. And when he comes back here to planet Earth, the entire new heavens and new earth are going to be created after the old heavens and old earth pass away. Most significantly, when God decided to enter into his physical creation, he became a man and lived here on Earth. Uh, when I see these sort of things, it makes me really doubtful there's a planet Vulcan out there or the Klingon Empire or you name it, uh, because it does seem that the focus of what's going on in the universe is all about what's happening here. Now, UFO phenomena, uh, boy, the more you study it, the more you begin to discover that it is uh, hardly uh, distinguishable from the same old uh, mediumistic phenomena that people used to have where they would have seances and speak with spirits and so forth. Same message. Just don't put your faith in Christ or, or, you know, Hey, I'm going to give you this revelation that, that, uh, you know, if you, uh, you know, worship these angels, these angels will give you uh, great wisdom. Same sort of thing. Uh, you read things like the Urantia book, uh, which was supposedly given 
by uh, this Federation of Planets to an individual, you know, it goes out of its way to say that, uh, you know, we're the creation of uh, these UFO beings. Uh, movies like, uh, for instance, uh, the Alien series tend to lead you in that direction. There's a lot of that stuff out there. Uh, you know, it seems to me that if Satan wants to deceive people, the best way he can do that is not showing up, as we say, like a refugee from another wood deviled ham can. But showing up and saying, hey, you know, I'm from the United Federation of Planets or or, yeah, you know, look at this phenomenon over here. Maybe it's interdimensional. You know, that's the new one that's out there. It's not uh, that they're coming from another star, another planet. They're from another dimension and all the Marvel movie hoo-ha about uh, the multiverse and so on. No evidence for that whatsoever in Scripture. But if Satan can get you to believe in that. And there's an element of truth to it and that there is a spiritual dimension, if you will, to this reality that we don't perceive with our senses more often than not. But if he can get you to believe that uh, and not believe uh, in a biblical worldview, if he can get you to believe in evolutionism uh, like the Star Trek uh, series preached constantly, then he's going to lead you away from a relationship with God. And so, yeah, I do think there's a spiritual battle that's involved there, but not the way a lot of people think. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, we have to worry about uh, UFOs and such, but we do know that Satan is going to trade in all kinds of uh, signs and lying wonders in the last days to lead people to believe things that are a lie. So I think that's really where a lot of modern UFO phenomena comes from. All right. Uh, finishing up, we have one more question regarding uh, from Justin, who wants to know, what is the abomination that causes desolation? Uh, we're told in not many places, but I think the most straightforward is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where it notes that he yeah. will sit in the Holy of Holies declaring himself to be God. Yeah. Uh, if people want to spin that and say, oh, no, the abomination is uh, human experimentation and alien hybrids and, you know, Infowars and stuff. No. Uh, Scripture is very clear. The abomination of desolation is the desolation of the Jewish temple foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes historically. But for whatever reason, in Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of it as if it was yet to be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, you shall not die. You shall be as God. Uh, that's what Satan's ambition has always been, and he's going to put on a dog and pony show to try to prove it. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.